Welcome back to Futureverse, a podcast centered around climate fiction and how it helps us imagine our way forward through climate uncertainty. Welcome back to Futureverse, a new podcast focused on climate fiction and the stories that tell us what our future could look like, both bad and good. As you probably know from the last episode, Ramadan and I invest in technology companies with a climate focus. And through many conversations with each other, we discovered that we also both love to read climate fiction and decided to share that passion with the world, whether you want us to or not, through this podcast, Futureverse. Um, And my two cents are that climate-focused storytelling helps us imagine new futures, both warnings and perspectives that could help humanity and Earth's ecosystems prosper. And it gives us unfamiliar problems to think about, a bit of a spoiler alert, like what happens when you throw aliens into the equation. What would we want visitors to our planet to see if or when they arrive? In our first episode, we interviewed James Bradley, who recommended several writers doing incredible things in the world of climate fiction. And one of the writers he mentioned and recommended to us is here today, Ruthanna Emrys, a talented author who released a book a few years ago that we were delighted to read, A Half-Built Garden. Ruthanna has written several books and short stories that delve into a form of sort of magical science alien realism from the Lovecraft-derived Innsmouth Legacy series to A Half-Built Garden her most recent novel. She's also a poet, a video game writer, and a blogger. Ruthanna has been nominated and shortlisted several times for her Innsmouth Legacy series and received numerous accolades and praise for A Half-Built Garden. Ruthanna, thank you for coming on our little show and talking to us about your novel. We'll we'll center much of this conversation around A Half-Built Garden, which both Molly and I have read, but we can talk about all kinds of other things as we go along. We thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and we'll start with a softball question. Um, they're all softball questions. Just <laughs> exactly. Um, there are no hardball questions here. And the question is, and you can take it in any direction you wish, how does a world le- dealing with climate change respond to unlikely visitors? So thank you for having me on. I'm very happy to be here. A uh, Half-Built Garden is uh, my near-future science fiction novel uh, about the people who have moved uh, governance in the directions needed to solve climate change and how they handle a very different sort of problem that their decision-making methods aren't really set up for. Uh, because it's me, that is aliens, but the aliens are really there. They, they could be any other black swan event that challenged the systems that were in place, much as climate change challenges the systems that we have today. Um, In this case, uh, one of the challenges is that the people in a half-built garden have organized themselves around watersheds and around making decisions with the people who are ecologically affected by those decisions. And uh, when aliens show up, it can be kind of hard to figure out whose job it is and who it affects and uh, therefore ends up kind of falling on the heads of people who aren't quite prepared for it and who probably aren't enough people to deal with it. I want to ask so many more questions about the book, but before I get that far, tell me, you made, you made this comment just now and said, because it's me. 
it's aliens. So I want to know more about that. Why is that something that it is like specifically the direction you would go? And what are the influences that got you there? I've always loved first contact novels. I'm really fascinated by the challenges of communication, but sometimes the challenges of communication within humanity are just frustrating because I need to deal with them every day. And aliens are a fun way of getting at how different can someone be and still be someone you can talk to and what sort of misunderstandings are likely to arise and what can we do to make cooperation possible across difference and confusion. Mm-hmm. And I'm aliens are just, they're, they're more they're fun, fun than, <laughs> you know, asteroid impacts or something. Aliens are a very generative possibility opening sort of a black swan. Mm-hmm. Where many crises are possibility closing in some ways. Ramanan, you're still muted. And by the way, we'll we'll fix audio blips and video blips in post production. But I'm and claims that I'm a video game writer, also. <laughs> yes, if you want um, us to, but I, I am not a video game writer. Okay, well, we've got to erase that then. Um, so, most of this conversation is about climate and, and climate in the context of your fiction, but that's not all we talk about here because both. Molly and I are readers, and we're interested in influences. And you've cited Octavia Butler, uh, Geraldine Brooks uh, as influencers, and you've been described as a literary descendant of Ursula K. Le Guin. How do these authors influence the way you approach your world building? And did we miss someone? Is there someone else besides maybe Lovecraft who's really been a big force in your life? The someone else would definitely be Marge Piercy. Uh, Woman on the Edge of Time was one of the big influences on this book. She was one of the first authors I ever read who depicted a positive future that looked like a place where I would be happy to live. And there is a certain amount of both Mouth of Mattapoisette and arguments with Mouth of Mattapoisette in a Half-Built Garden. Uh, Butler... I, I like to think that she's an influence. I sometimes feel that it's a little bit of hubris to claim that, but the way that she uh, is constantly exploring problems of power imbalance is uh, one of the big things about her work that jumps out at me and raises all sorts of questions that are uh, incredibly fruitful to explore about how you can have relationships between people and species who have different amounts and different types of power. Uh, Geraldine Brooks is probably more of a prose influence. Uh, I love her level of description, the way she can be poetic and yet extremely transparent and clear in what she's describing. Um, Talk about uh, fiction, whether it's climate fiction or not, 
is about point of view. And the points of view in this book are, are, are really different and in some cases really unexpected. Adam, I mean, just as a starting point, many of the characters uh, are queer and Jewish and aliens. Um, and I wonder how much you see yourself in these characters and how important it was to influence your writing in that way. I, I am told by my research notes that you also are a queer Jewish woman, and I would imagine that influenced your writing since <laughs> you must be reflected in these characters. Yes, this is, I, I've written a lot of queer characters in the past, and I've written some Jewish characters. This is the first book where I've really written a lot of Jewish characters. I'm very used to being the only or one of the only Jewish people in my communities. Uh, I grew up in a community where I was the only Jewish kid in school, so uh, I often have a bit of a Star Trek crew approach to uh, characters and end up having groups where there's, you know, there's Jewish person and there's the Christian and there's the person who worships Cthulhu and there's the atheist. That's, that's the way I grew up. Um, but this time I wanted to explore Jewish community more deeply. And so I really gave myself permission to write people who had things in common, both with, with each other and with me and to uh, explore that kind of community more deeply and to have that, those similarities better contrast with the bringing in the aliens who, of course, have very different groups that they even could have been a part of. <sighs> right. Yeah, with the queerness, I'm... Like you said, I, I'm a queer Jewish woman living in a, a group household and um, wanting to represent the sort of people and relationships that I see around me every day and see how those people react to challenges and adventures. Uh, and then the other aspect of the point of view, that is something that I really don't often see in science fiction especially, is I wanted to write parenthood as an integral part of the problem solving that people were doing. Very often in fiction, parenthood is really, it's an impediment to the plot. You got to find a babysitter so you can go off and fight the evil overlord. And my experience as a parent is that there's a lot of continuity between parenting and living in the world, especially when you're living in a world that is a danger to your kids. If you are living surrounded by dangerous politics and you are not just trying to prevent your kids from learning about that stuff, then you've got to sit down and you talk about fascism and you talk about oppression and you talk about activism and you talk about environmentalism and so I wanted to I wanted to set something up that is appropriate to a book that starts with changing diapers in front of an alien spaceship. Right. Um, Molly and I are both parents, and so we can we can relate to all of it. Uh, and I do want to tell you we we both want to live in that house, so um, yeah. we we want to know more about it. And that's a good that's actually a good segue. We'll wait. <laughs> yes, um, that's a good segue to the novel itself and. So we've got a bunch of things we want to talk to you about here. 
Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll start with the high level, which is both Molly and I love reading the book, and you've described it as a story about a society built to deal with climate change that suddenly has to deal with something else, which is aliens showing up and effectively demanding that humans abandon Earth. And that's a, that's a very simplistic portrayal of the storyline. So the question for you is, what are the main things you'd want us to take away or the average informed reader to take away from the novel? What would you say, hey, they got those three things, this is success? <laughs> that we can get to a better future, that there's no such thing as a stopping point in the future. You have to keep changing and adapting and new problems keep showing up. So there's no utopian point where you've solved everything and there's no more plot. <sighs> and what, what else? When you, when, you, when you get called to deal with first contact, take your kids along. It might be important. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we agree. I mean, I just can't get enough of that aspect of it because it's not only, uh, as you said, completely invisible in so much fiction, whether it's movies or books, but it's also like so viscerally the stakes. Like when you need to get people on board with your conversation, even across political lines, a lot of times the thing that will work on people who can't necessarily be sold on whether climate change is real, which is a whole other conversation, but they can be sold on I want my kids to have a better life or I want my grandkids to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so I, it feels like you didn't just address, it's like there's parenting, but there's also this question of like who we are as a species and what is the point? And it seems like mm-hmm. the answer is it's our kids. Yeah, and it's, you know, I tried to portray that, you know, parenting is not the only way that we give to the future, but it's not separate from all the other ways we give to the future either. Mm-hmm. I have teenage boys, and I'd like to state here that I, I'd be delighted to hand them over to aliens, but we can, we can discuss that separately. <laughs> um, what inspired you to create the Watershed Networks, which I can't speak for Molly, but I thought that was just a really interesting take, um, and, and one that I hadn't really seen elsewhere in my readings, certainly. How did you decide on that? What, what led to that? Well, I started with asking myself what sort of governance structure, if it's not the nation states that we have now, would be good for dealing with climate change. And people have written a lot with, you know, planetary scale governance, but that's not only hard to write, but challenging to see how we could get from point A to point B. But I I grew up on Cape Cod, which is a place that a lot of politics, for good and ill, centers around the local watershed and arguments uh, about how we should be interacting with the ocean ecology and with the groundwater and with flow from the mainland. And now I live in the Chesapeake Bay area, which also has a very strong watershed-based activists set of organizations and you know I, I'm right near the tideline of the Anacostia. Um, we can go and you know take 
voting trips and look at all of the mitigations that people have been putting in place without waiting for permission at the national level. And so it seemed to me a place that had a very concrete way of setting not boundaries of care, but communities of care, people who have needs in common. And I was also seeing you know, places where you have cross-state arguments about who gets how much of the Colorado River for what purposes. And <clears throat> having those artificial boundaries cutting across rivers where everyone lives upstream and downstream from each other and drinks the same water and uses the same water for manufacturing. It just seemed like a way to organize things that was both appropriate to the problem and scaled for writing in a meaningful way. It's interesting because it seems like a major theme of this book is this decentralization. This kind of, you know, you have lots of different watersheds. They all communicate with each other. They have sort of communal decision-making um, through basically very advanced Reddit upvoting and downvoting and waiting. And um, and then society's sort of been broken up into these three sects. You have the watersheds, the dandelion networks, you have corporations, which is, have basically been exiled um, to these artificial islands, and then sort of presumably like these old government systems. I sort of want, I don't want to spoil the prequel, but I do sort of want, can you walk us through like what would have happened to cause the corporations to be banished in that way. I think that's such an interesting plot point and for the watershed networks to have as much power as they have in this new future. So part of what's going on in this future, and I am, I, I live in the DC area. I live within the beltway. I love the hard work that gets done by people in the executive agencies. And I also see the degree to which nation state level government can undermine itself even while it's trying to hold on to power. And so in the backstory to this book, the watersheds are what came forward to deal with problems that government was not giving itself the power to deal with. So you can imagine if this goes on of the points where their conservative congresses vote against the EPA having any power to enforce clean water standards. And in this case, you have groups that come forward and say, well, if you can't enforce it, we can. And um, the, the dandelion revolution, as it gets called, is not any sort of traditional revolution. It's people stepping forward to take up that space and to keep the people who are doing climate harm from taking up that space. So you have a lot of people talking about fighting on the fence lines and forcefully preventing corporations from polluting or putting out car larger carbon footprints. And there was certainly some of that, but a lot of it is also just a change in the way society organizes itself and in the way people are willing to 
get in the way of problems and take up that space with solutions such that there isn't room for the problems anymore. And at some point, they get enough power that they can tell the corporations, no, you can't do that here. We're not going to buy that. I don't care whether the government's coming in to keep you from building this pipeline. We are in the way. You can't do that. And the exile is, in many cases, a self-exile. The artificial islands are based around what you always hear about corporate CEOs and billionaires having these plans to get away from the apocalypse and hide out in bunkers where no one can get to them. And from their perspective, this was an apocalypse of capitalism, if not uh, of other things. And so when things got hard enough for them, they just went off and built their platforms in the ocean and, you know, waited for opportunities to arise again. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, you know, the main thing I took away from that is we need a prequel. Because um, that sounds like a really interesting period to write about and think about, and one that's even closer in time to us, obviously. But I'm going to I'm going to take us in a slightly different um, and quirkier direction, which is in the book. You know, the main humans we interact with that we identify with are very pro ringer, even if they want to stay on Earth, like Judy and the watersheds. No humans react poorly to the ringers. Um, and, you know, humans seem to radically accept the aliens even reveling in the love that ends up forming between species, which is a very unusual thing to find in, in fiction. It seems like humans generally accept the aliens and they come over for dinner and they eat jam. And so the question was, where did that come from? You know, and, you know usually when you think about alien-human interaction, you know, best case, there is some complicated detente that sets in pretty quickly. You know, here, before long, we are, in fact, talking. Let's just be clear about this. We are talking about alien sex. So, um, where did that come from? I mean, what inspired that imagination? You know, there probably are people off screen who are being xenophobic, but I was writing this in, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020. I was dealing with a lot of that stuff, and xenophobia is both upsetting and boring. And I just didn't want to write about it. I was more interested in writing about the challenges that you get even when you're trying to build relationships. And, you know, I'm I'm sure that many humans are not quite as, as you said, radically accepting as uh, some of the main characters. But, you know, uh, I, I was a Trekkie. I had a crush on Spock. Um, I like writing about these things and it's interesting to write about them when it's not just a person in a prosthetic forehead and people have more that they have to negotiate. I will say I was getting very strong Star Trek vibes. Like it it really, I mean that you just, that's the feeling you get of this, this potential for gentleness, acceptance, conversation, I mean, restorative justice, like the 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 kind of conflict re- resolution that comes across in this book is also remarkable. And I wonder if you have imagined 
uh, an interaction that could almost only happen in a world where climate change has rendered, you know, nation states irrelevant and they just can't show up in helicopters and militarize the whole thing. I mean, certainly the fact that no one is showing up in helicopters is helpful. It's, it's honestly, it's a place where aliens represent an opportunity for all of the groups involved. And they're most dangerous to the status quo. And the status quo at this point happens to not have a lot in the way of military helicopters. The government doesn't want to bring around military helicopters. They want to prove that they're still relevant and become more relevant by having some control over first contact on the terms that they're allowed to. The corporations don't want to send in military helicopters. They want to sell movies. <sighs> yeah. Um, let's talk about corp- corporations for a minute. So the, you know, societies on earth are making progress against the damage that's been caused by the climate crisis, but also you know, let's, again, we're sort of in a prequel territory, but the Dandelion Network does seem to have really changed the economy on Earth. And there seem there is degrowth, which is a big topic in kind of the environmental world. Talk about imagining what that might look like and, and how it would come about, not specifically by force, but by social force. Yeah, it's, it's very much a less capitalist future. It's one that is built on a lot of current mutual aid and uh, mediation and, you know, resource sharing movements and that has scaled those things up. It's not one that has gotten entirely away from the need to, <clears throat> you know, buy resources from corporations. And that's one of the areas where there's a lot of internal debate and yelling that goes on. But I, there's a lot of movement in science fiction now towards thinking about futures of governance. You have the Terra Ignota series with the hives. Uh, you have Malka Older's Infomocracy series. And I wanted to join that conversation, but I also wanted to think specifically in Le Guinian terms uh, about what is as different from late-stage capitalism as late-stage capitalism is different from the divine right of kings. And so I was trying to push on the economics as well as on the governance side. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all these things are intertwined, right? I'm, I'm going to, I was going to preface this question by saying I'm going to dig into climate a little further, but you know, that's pretty much intertwined with issues of governance among other things. So this is, in a much more pronounced way than Clade, the first book we read by by James Bradley, as we mentioned. This is a story about a world in which the climate has changed. You know, there's essentially no flight. Societies have a carbon budget. Some things have been tried and rejected. Um, It sounds like, in your view, we blow right on by 1.5 degrees, as as an example. Um, Is that the case? Is that what's happened here? 
This is a trend. I actually built this future on the more optimistic end of models of how the future could go. You know, even if we stop at 1.5, we have a lot of change baked in, a lot of sea level rise, a lot of changes to weather, a lot of changes to what foods we're going to be able to get and how. So I wanted to write a society that was just starting to get to the downslope. They've dealt with a lot of what's baked in, and if they do everything right, things are going to start to get better. But they're still hard at this point. There are months of the year where it's very hard to go outside. There's not really a hurricane season so much as there's a season where there are fewer and smaller hurricanes. So, the, but the, the, this is, you know, I, I wasn't doing out calculations myself, but I was looking at the IPCC report and at sea level rise simulators and figuring out, okay, what is the best thing that I can imagine if we start doing things right and fixing things relatively soon and then I had to kind of adjust the sea level up over the course of the time that I was writing it. So, Wow. And it's been really interesting just from a psychological perspective that I was really aiming for as optimistic as I could get. And frequently when I read reviews, they're like, this is showing a climate catastrophe. This is showing, you know... Uh, pessimistic future about how bad it's going to get. And like, oh, I, I, I wish this was the pessimistic side. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of denial by reviewers, I think. Yikes. But it's also, I think people don't actually have that intuitive uh, sense of what are the good outcomes and what are the bad outcomes and how much difference is there between them. And I'm not sure that I have a good sense of that either. I have, you know, a lot of arguments within my household of exactly how much sea level rise do we need to be planning for over the next 20, 30 years. And, you know, we're, we're all fairly familiar with the literature. We're none of us climate specialists ourselves. And we don't necessarily all have the same view of how to interpret what we understand of the data. So tell us about some of the strategies that you portray in the book. Ramanan and I are, of course, are climate investors. And that involves a little bit of in our case, mostly trying to encourage behavior change, less silver bullet technologies. Um, there's a lot of tech, but it seems like also a lot of pretty basic ecological strategies that people are using in the future, you imagine, to reverse some of this damage. So I'm a social scientist by training. When I think about how to solve societal scale problems, I think about how to support and structure 
good societal level and individual level decision making. Uh, one of the central technologies in the book uh, is the dandelion networks, and those are based fairly closely on modern crowdsourcing and citizen science uh, setups. Uh, they also include some work with algorithms uh, based generally on the idea that given that we end up frequently with algorithms and AI that are unintentionally biased based on their data sets, that we ought to be able to design algorithms that are biased in ways we want to be biased and that bake in the long-term priorities that we want to have as a society, but that as individuals in the moment we may have trouble sticking to. So if you want your society to to be focusing on environmental justice and keeping rivers clean and lowering the carbon budget, but you know that in the moment people may be prone to you know, wanting to get a hold of a bigger chocolate budget, then you, along with all these opportunities for all the individuals to put in their arguments and their votes in the dandelion networks, you add in an algorithm that is intended to both argue for and weight decisions towards those long-term goals. It doesn't take away choice, but it adds weight to the long long-term choices that you've made, which you can change at any time and change the algorithms, and helps to offset some of the short-term tendencies that are not actually universal to humanity, but which a lot of modern societies have tended to be biased towards. I do want to jump in here, sorry, Ramanan, and say that I found it really interesting that the, the hack effectively, and I don't want to give too much away, um, that impacts the dandelion network is, is essentially one of disinformation mm -hmm. at, related to that kind of algorithmic surfacing and hiding. Um, and given the time frame that you said you were writing in, I, I'm curious about the, the kind of origin of, of that and how you were thinking about that waiting and, and how information makes or does not make change. It's honestly something that I've started to think about more afterwards. I wasn't thinking of it as disinformation at the time, and then gradually that started to be a bigger concern societally as I was writing, and I you know, folded that in as I was needing. Um, I definitely thought about the, the way I wrote the corporations. I wanted them to be fun to write. And I've also occasionally heard people use the phrase Silicon Valley fair folk to describe the odd attitudes that you get with people who are very caught up in the world of tech companies. And so I kind of leaned into that and had them be very glamorous. They have sort of an 80s aesthetic that they've appropriated from the not-so-corporately inclined glam rock scene, and they spend a lot of time having very fancy parties while they're waiting for the world to be one that they can control again. And one of the things I did with that was to have people almost have mythologized the power of 
advertising to be able to control people's minds and then play with that in a thing where the corporations genuinely do have a fair amount of expertise in how to manipulate people's desires. But the paranoia about that is even stronger. The assumption that they have this sort of fake glamour about them that can get you to want deodorant or to have them tell you what to do. <laughs> I, I will say when I read that piece, uh, that those sections, I, it did feel like these were characters stepping out of fairy. You know, that there was, there was a quality of the old magic about them and not in a good way, right? Yes. Um, okay. So we're going we're gonna to begin heading on home stretch. And so one question relating to this, and we have a couple of fun questions to round us up. And the question relating to what you just said, and much of what we've talked about is, you know, there's this inherent tension. You know, challenging bigotry, for example, seems to be a very huge part of your life. And there, there has to be this inherent tension as an author between, hey, let me just write a good story but let me also find ways to talk about pushing social change. And so any insights into how your brain works as you think about that tension would, I think, be useful for this audience. I honestly don't think of it as a tension. I think that the push for social change is a source of story. People trying to push against social change make... Uh, very good adversaries. Uh, pushing for social change is a big, hard effort that we both want and need stories about. You know, when I went to the first Women's March, there were people there with Princess Leia signs, and there were people there with Hunger Games signs, and you know, stories not only are something that we take with us into the world to help us explain how we're working for change, but they reflect the ways that working for change is such a big force in our lives. It's you know, it's it's one of the big challenges that, as you said, I I face in real life, and it's something that I enjoy writing about, and you know, making a little bit bigger than life and a little bit plot shaped and exciting. <sighs> I I do want to say before before we go to home stretch uh, with a couple of fun questions that. Molly and I live and work in Silicon Valley, and we both have made it a point not to go to Silicon Valley parties. So I'm afraid <laughs> we're, we're a terrible source of useful plot information for the next, for the next novel. To be fair, uh, occasionally I will go to some, and then I will text Ramadan when I am on my way, and he will say, what did I tell you? Never go to Silicon Valley parties. <laughs> do, do they have, like, the hummingbird drones passing messages? I mean, no. sometimes. <laughs> Um, okay, so I, I, I want to push us along here. and Well, I do want to ask one thing before we, before oh, we scoot to the true home stretch is that um, on that note, very specifically, pronouns are a huge deal in this book. And to me, they came to almost symbol, because the book seems very much to be about community, agency, choice, individuality. And I wonder, like, 
is that was that the goal of the pronouns throughout is to sort of say this is so individual this is like the 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 representation of individual agency for almost every character you encounter it, it ended up working that way a lot. Um, you know, some of it is I just I've got a lot of trans people in my life, and that's one of the major ways that I see people trying to explain and represent themselves and their agency. Some of it was, I mentioned March Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, which is a book where everyone uses a single set of pronouns. I love that. Uh, person per are actually my own preferred uh, pronouns, but they don't work when you're the only one using them. And I wanted to play around with the way that even as there are a lot of very recognizable things in this book, we've gone in a different direction with gender, where gender is having this diversity of options and ways that you can describe yourself. And the dandelion societies are uh, very much descended from modern queer culture. The corporations are taking it in a different direction. And one of the things I want to play with them is that they had appropriated neo-pronouns and they use pronouns in a very different way. Uh, There's a point where one of the corporate characters says that they're true gender, if it exists, is none of anyone else's business. All anyone needs to know is what they're wearing and what they, how they should be treated in the moment. Um, I actually admit to having a bit of a soft spot for that myself. I'm more of a presentation person than an internal gender person, and I would probably enjoy approximately one corporate party and then get very frustrated with how seriously they take the social games. Um, As a writer, I highly recommend not putting... 11 neo-pronouns in your book, or if you do, keep all of your notes in one table in one easily findable place that doesn't get lost when you change computers. Um, But it, it, it was a lot of fun to do, and the corporate folks who are constantly shifting pronouns and you have to keep track of what sort of power they're trying to exercise in the moment based on their pronouns were a particularly interesting way to do that. And then with the aliens, they have very different both biological and cultural approaches to gender. And I wanted to think through what being gender nonconforming or trans looks like in a society where, say, female eggs hatch many years earlier than male eggs and sisters raise their brothers or where gender is something that changes depending on your the outcomes of dominant struggles with the people that you're going to breed with and how all of these different cultures come together and affect each other and how people take tools from these sort of syncretic relationships to deal with places where their own society hasn't worked for them. They don't have good words for mm-hmm. Um Thank you for that. That was very 
insightful is one way to describe it. But and a copy editing it. challenge. You are yeah. right. I kept thinking that honestly. That's what I, 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 I told. I like, How are you doing that? <laughs> I told my editor when I handed it in. I need a copy editor who is a neo pronoun rock star. I got one. Uh, they they caught a number of places where I had accidentally mispronounced uh, corporate folks mostly uh, and got that fixed. I hope we've got all of the uh, people screwing up uh, pronoun changeovers out of the final version. <sighs> yeah, I think you, you mentioned that in your acknowledgments. So, fun question number one I already alluded to, but I'm, I'm going to ask it again um, more explicitly, which is, are you going to write any more stories in this universe? Prequels, sequels, other, you know, contemporaneous but different parts of the world. What is the future for Judy and her clan? Uh, I don't have anything going on right now. If Tor.com asks me to, I can imagine writing a story uh, with Judy's parents or with, you know, the ongoing uh, etiquette challenges of interspecies family building or with the uh, interesting things that the government is trying to do at the end. Um, if no one asks me for that and offers to pay for it, which so far hasn't happened, then there might be a story or two. But uh, right now I'm working on other standalones. <sighs> um, fascinating. Okay, well, I, for one, would pay cash money for a prequel. Especially Judy's family. So interesting. Okay, we don't want to give it all away. Who um, we also, we came to you as a result of the wonderful James Bradley recommending you. And so we're just going to continue to pay that forward. Who, as we look at writers who are really examining climate and the climate crisis in a really interesting way, who do you think we should talk to? Uh, I mentioned Malka Older. I think she's doing some really cool things with that and also has some background disaster response that is extremely relevant. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown is also someone who I drew a lot on her writing for the uh the moderation and the conflict resolution stuff in the Dandelion Networks. <sighs> Fantastic. Ruthanna, thank you so much for the time today, for being our second interviewee. Um, and we hope, uh, we, I think it's fair to say we actually hope we head toward a future like the one that you've created in Half Built Garden. For I, for one, am all in on group living and canning. I just want to make more jam <laughs> and like, greet the aliens. Like to eat um, more jam. And more importantly, uh, yes, more jam and a future where we start going in the right direction. Um, you've really created something for us to aspire to. It's great. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking with you. That's the end of our second episode of Futureverse. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Ruthanna Emrys. I think Raman Emrys, are you there? About her latest book, I'm still there. Half Built Garden, which is available everywhere that you can find books. Hello? We no, recommend buying from a local bookstore or bookshop.org, which supports local bookstores. Ruthanna, thank you. Um, You've given us a humanity to actually be proud of, which is wonderful. And certainly when we meet other life forms, uh, which may happen in my lifetime, uh, we, we will know some lessons. You can be found on your website, which is ruthannaemrys.com, R-U-T-H-A-N-N-A-E-M-R-Y-S.com, or on Twitter at 
R underscore Emrys, E-M-R-Y-S. And as always, thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back soon with more episodes of Futureverse and exploring the intersection of climate and speculative fiction. Ruthanna, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please email us your suggestions or ideas at futureverse at substack.com and visit futureverse.earth for the full transcript of this podcast and other information. 